Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. Definitely one of the best setters we've seen in a long time, and he's got a resume to prove it. So today's guest was the Alberta Player of the Year coming out of high school. He's won two provincial championships in high school, a club national championship, and he won the National Team Challenge Cup with Team Alberta. He went on to play at the University of Calgary, where he's a national champion. Then he went on to play pro in Slovenia, two years in Germany, and is representing Canada at several levels, including being named the best setter at a Norseka Championships. Please welcome to the show, Kieran McGovern. Kieran, thanks for doing this, man. Absolutely. Happy to be on the show. So we've had a few Alberta guys on the show, and I'm learning that's a pretty stacked volleyball area. And just hearing about your high school days and your club days, like where did you grow up? What other sports were you playing? And then what switched you on to volleyball to be like the, the full-time thing you were going to pursue at a high level? Uh, yeah, so I grew up in, in Grand Prairie. We had quite a few volleyball people in the community. Um, like Brian Pomeroy had played a little bit on the national team. Uh, back in the early 2000s, and the uh, college team there was really strong. So I was fortunate enough to benefit from great uh, coaches growing up. We even had like two CCAA Players of the Year that were my coaches when I was like in junior high, Denise Odell and, and Jason Weaver. So they were uh, super helpful in the start of my career, and my brother uh, played growing up as well. So he actually played with kind of a generation some other players that came out of there were like Tim Gorley, Mark Tingle, they all went to university. Um, so I kind of was the little brother that benefited from all the uh, fun older brother things. So I'd get in the backyard with them and they would hit balls at me quite frequently and probably not to the pace that it's a four-year difference. But uh, I benefited from that uh, growing up and it was super fun to play with them on the beach and learn from them uh, throughout my entire childhood. That's awesome. Yeah. And when we had Shane White on the show, he mentioned that uh, there's a lot of passionate volleyball people in Alberta that he was trying to think, but I think after high school and when he got into a good level of club, he never played for a coach who was below like a level three. So I'm curious with the high school you went to winning two provincial championships, like who was the coach there? Who were some of your club coaches? Because it sounds like having siblings in the sport is is a major benefit and you grew from that. But who were some of the coaches that helped you along the way too? Uh, so I had uh, Jeff Smith, who is with our uh, Paralympic men's team, men's volleyball team. Um, so he was one of my first uh, coaches outside of the two that I previously mentioned. And then um, I, in Grand Prairie, we had David Johnson, who was at the Grand Prairie Council High School. Uh, my brother played football, and I actually moved to a club national title with Cal Air, and it was uh, Rudy Verhoof was on our team, and Paul Lindemulder, and a couple other like uh, families in that kind of group. So we actually benefited from having a lot of college and university players on our club team, but moved uh, from Grand Prairie into Calgary. And then uh, we had two fantastic club coaches, uh, John Rowe, who I believe is helping out with NCO, lead their women's team now, and then Scott Leahy, who is a former UFC player. Uh, they played on the beach actually for quite a while as well. Um, against Norseka tournament. Nice. And with, we benefited from having them as coaches. They hopped into training. They um, 
call it the scrow show all the time. Scott and John just <laughs> run us through the, the ringer and there was two like high level university players that played at West. And uh, our you know 18U guys learned a ton from them. Yeah, you and I were talking before the show. I think in your U17 club year, you played Canucks. So that just shows the level of talent in Alberta. So with you having a teammate like Rudy, who were some of the guys that you were across the net from that just playing like at the high school level or the club level that were also like Alberta guys? So I, I do need to make one correction. It was Cal Air. And if I don't make that correction, something's going to happen. The rival was against Canucks. So like Graham Bygrass was on the other side. And then it was like myself and Rudy. And some of the other guys on on our team, um, and most of the guys went to on to play uh, university or college in some capacity. Some of the other guys, like we had our high school team at uh, Calgary Christian, had Jared Offren sitting on the bench, who I think was the libero of the year um, for Trinity Western. After that, so we had a pretty um, strong group of guys uh, growing up together, playing together all the time. Uh, it was after school. It was on the beach. Uh, like all day, every day. Anytime we could get into the gym, we were there. Any mini games all the time, uh, playing, competing. It was super, super fun. That's awesome. And I think uh, this era has changed a little bit where I think you can make the provincial team younger. Or most provinces have started younger programs. But for your cycle, do you remember the first time you walked into a Team Alberta tryout? Because I imagine it was like an 18U program, right? It wasn't like there was a 16U or there wasn't like a a mixed age group like here in Ontario I think you can start as young as 15 you now which is, which is great but again like like I said in your era that wasn't a thing right so when you walk into this gym how competitive is it how many guys are there like what's just the vibe around being a team Alberta guy yeah so we had uh, we were actually U16 so I know in Ontario um, a lot of guys play beach when they're growing up beforehand in Alberta we did have a thing called Western Elites which was like U16 and under oh, okay. uh, but it was mixed so you didn't have like defined U15 U16 like I walked into a gym in when I was in grade nine. So I was a younger player and walked in and, and was a setter at the time and, and looked around and it was like, uh, can't remember who was, Tanner Nolt was like kind of the main setter that was a year older than me coming out of Alberta. Um, but I walked into the gym and I was still relatively small, like, like not matured yet completely. And I just looked around and I was like, I'm going to play libero instead. So actually, <laughs> uh, walked into the camp and Blair Band did the exact same thing. So we both uh, figured out that oh, we're both going to play libero. So then we duped it out in that in that tryout. Uh, I still won the spot from any school to hear about it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he he definitely got the last on the libero side. So he was. We were both on the other side, just like. I think it was literally hitting more up with 53s and we were just standing on the other side uh, trying to dig balls. Like, it was ridiculous. Uh, so it was a super fun uh, shift and change. And uh, that was the first time I walked into an Alberta tryout. We trained up in Grand Prairie with um, Mike Lozon was our coach. So it was kind of fortunate, like, kind of stayed at home for the summer. But definitely an interesting first foray into you know, Alberta and playing a different position and uh, we ended up losing to our other Alberta team in the Bronx. Okay. Oh, okay. And then for you personally, like that was a good way to get on the team. But after a year of like just a general year of being more physical, maybe going through a growth spurt and then just playing more, is that what switched you back to a setter? Or did you pursue libero for a little while? Uh, no, that was really, I did it once. Um, came back to school year uh, in grade 
I got to think back. So I came back to school and then it was grade 10 and we had another setter who played team Alberta that year as well. Uh, we had like three or four team Alberta players on our high school team. So I didn't really play when I was in grade 10. And then in grade 11, I played as an outside hitter because he was, he was a year older than me. He played uh, setter and then I just kind of switched around positions, like whatever was best for the team at the time. I wanted to play. I wanted to compete. So I, I flopped around a couple of times position-wise and then did uh, it again throughout my career. I think a few times I had, there was circumstances that pushed it forward and, and uh, took the opportunity when I could. Yeah, definitely. And when you look back, do you think that is a credit to how much beach you're playing or how many mini games you're playing? Because I think setters, especially, that's a very specialized position where you're not touching first contact ever. And I know like people might think middles don't do it either, but maybe a middle can work into a drill now and then. The setter really doesn't have those chances. So was it the backyard games? Was it the beach? Or how were you just deciding at registration? You're like, I'm going to go for libero and I'm going to make the provincial team right now. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> the time when you're a kid you just i just like saw a path and i was just like i'm gonna go win at this like i i don't i kind of sized up like where i was at i just said mm, either the team like has other options or i'm just gonna go you know compete against other guys and i can go like win at this position um so it was always like competitively driven and all the games that we play like um i don't know if kids still do this in alberta like you're always on the road with your team uh, especially being in grand prairie like we were on a bus uh the closest tournament that we had was edmonton which is like a five-hour bus trip away um so anytime you're in you had four guys into a room uh all, all the time growing up and it was all like we played bed volleyball we played it on the bus like anytime you had a chance you were just playing little little games all the time and i think some of it was control like our high school in grand prairie the, the roof was like maybe a two feet higher than the backboard and that first year that i played in grade 10 our whole team the tallest guy was six foot one we just had a bunch of like small skilled controlled guys like um tom porto was on that team who ended up being a libero at uc and we had a bunch of guys that continued to play uh afterwards as well like either right here college or uh, different places after they didn't finish playing it was just all a bunch of small control guys nice well it's great to hear about your process and just wanting to be on the court and contributing you can play lots of different positions i'm curious with you winning at the high school level the club level the provincial team level were you a big goals and expectations guy were you just so competitive you wanted to win no matter what you were playing like what went into this because i don't think it's a coincidence you've won as many championships as you have but was it something that you were going to like say out loud and it was a goal or how did this all come together for you? I think it was the latter. Uh, I think as a kid, it was literally win at all costs. Didn't matter who was on the other side, it, like a ruthless pursuit to win. And, and it just continued throughout different sports. Like I, I played a bunch of sports growing up, but then volleyball was kind of my, my uh, strongest one and, and started flipping it at and, and uh, I think just at each level, you had to get better because you had to be able to win. And that's really what drove me uh, when I was a kid. And, you know, having games with my, my brother all the time or having games with other teammates, it was just like nonstop. Um, little small games, everything had to be, have a goal set in mind, like has to be scored. Uh, if it's not scored, then you're not really doing anything. That's my kind of uh, bottle. Like, and then we're just kind of dicking around. So I uh, really just 
always wanted to compete, didn't matter what it was. Great. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. And then I'm curious, why why Calgary? Why was that going to be the good fit for you? So when you're going through this, are you contacting coaches? Are they speaking to you? Did you know you wanted to stay close to home? Were you looking at a big school, small school? Like what went into your recruiting process? And then what made you finally land on UFC to be like your post-secondary destination? Yeah. Um, so so Graham uh, Bygrass, myself, and one other guy, uh, AJ Halverson, all decided that we wanted to go to the same university. We thought it was best volleyball wise. And we had uh, some of my other friends like Rudy and, and some of the other guys went off to Trinity Western. So we actually were all planning on going to UBC. Uh, we had Richard Chick there. We went out for a, a trip. Uh, I stayed with Blair, like Blair and I are still uh, very close and wanted to head there. And then um, Rod kind of approached us and said, you know, we want to we want to kind of build a team around you guys. Uh, we want you guys to be the cornerstone of uh, the program going forward. I think he had uh, a couple guys already uh, committed, like Omar Langford from Ontario was already there, and, and Tom. And we had like a very strong class that came in uh, our first year in 2007. We really had just a full flood, like a new team come in, and it was a really interesting opportunity to um, to kind of take a take a program and and see where we could go with it. And help me with the timeline. Where does a junior national team fit in? Were you already a university guy when you played for Team Canada on the junior national team? Or was that something after National Team Challenge Cup where they make the team? Because sometimes it changes. But for you to be a yeah. junior national team guy, where was that in, in your timeline here? Uh, yeah, it depends on the, the year. So youth was 20, 2005, I think. Um and then we went back for grade 12. We didn't qualify for the youth uh, world championships. And then your first year university is junior national. So okay. first and second year. Uh, so national team uh, NTCCs was, uh, they had just opened it up to U19. So like our U18 year with um, uh, Paul Armstrong, who was another fantastic coach of mine. I had him for six summers in a row. I had him for sports from Alberta's and two. Uh, junior national team camps so he was uh, also very instrumental uh, in my like development in our team he, uh, that, that's kind of the general timing that it fit into but NTCCs only became U19 I think that that year and some provinces didn't send U19 okay and with uh, you know me being based in Ontario some of our listeners I'd say most of our listeners in Ontario can you give me any name drops of some team Ontario guys you would have beat actually at your national team challenge cup because I think they they would love the shout out right now and maybe this will get them some some stories or memories from that year too yeah I think I have the almost the full team which was hilarious we had uh, Sander Ratsap and Taylor Hunt on the outside with uh, uh, Cam Bartlett I think was setting Joe Brooks was one of the middles and uh can't remember who their opposite was. Um can't remember who their opposite was, but it was uh them against kind of the younger Team Alberta U eighteen team. Um so that was like myself and Rudy and Graham, uh and Levi, uh not and a couple other guys from that uh uh time frame. So we were fortunate enough to beat them in five sets. I think there was a kick through the rafter. Uh Rudy kicked one. Uh ball that went through the through the roof and came down and we ended up playing the point so it's a little intense there's some video out there it doesn't exist anymore oh that'd be great if somebody can dig that up and send it over because i'd love to see that but uh 
So you're playing at a super high level. You're winning all these championships. You get to UFC. At that point, was there a jump in the level for you? Or was it just kind of because you're playing at such a high level and you're such a competitive guy? Like, did you feel a jump in either the the size, the speed, the maturity of the guys? Or how did you feel like your first year went at UFC? Yeah, I think it was uh, more of a, like, confidence change that needed to happen. And I think in my first couple of years, I took myself so seriously all the time. Uh, and it just, it wasn't, it wasn't a good style of play. Like I, I would be like so caught up in being a perfectionist and like, uh, fun and enjoyed what I was doing and kind of put myself forward as a, as a competitor first and, and, uh, you know, a, a precision setter kind of second, it both kind of flowed much better together. I think I, I got too caught up in some of the the other aspects of it. And, and as soon as I kind of relaxed and just allowed myself to play and enjoy it. And I, I remember a couple of times when I first realized I'm unplayable. Like I was terrible. <laughs> I was like a couple of comfort sets, but I wasn't really like setting and playing the game. I was just setting what was comfortable for me. Uh, and, and probably uh, from the outside, you don't see, you don't see that as often or you, you can't notice it as a, as someone in the crowd, but certainly like when I'm on the court, I'm just like, hey, I'm, I was just going to make sure I was setting like a comfortable thing that was going to execute well. And I wasn't trying to like overthink or kind of play a bigger game until I got. And did that happen with a coach or was that you self-reflecting that one, you, you sound like you really weren't enjoying it that much. And two, like in talking to you before the show, it sounds like the tactics in the game within the game is something you started to really enjoy. So did you just need to learn more about volleyball or did you honestly just feel like you needed to start enjoying it? Cause I think coming in as a first year and you could have big time and said, Oh, I've won this, I've won that. I've won all these things that you could have had like expectations, but uh, I'm wondering, was there an exact moment or was it kind of graceful that you just decided I'm going to start enjoying this more and I'm going to be more tactical in my delivery too. Yeah. I think part of it was enjoying it. Like I needed to, they, we played like a couple exhibition games and, and, uh, catch myself in like not a great headspace but I just had to have fun like I had to crack a joke that would be something that was uh more enjoyable than just like you know beating yourself down with a stick uh and just saying oh this is crap like I'm not playing well and that. so I had to like uh, change my mental headspace quite a bit in certain instances but I think going through uh there was a constant balance because we'd come back from like a junior national team camp and we were learning like Glenn's system under Chris Green, like our, our junior national team coach. Uh, we had a fantastic staff. Um, it was really like training more of a, a full game, like how we're going to game plan. It was very precise in how we stabbed things and how we uh, played against opponents. And that combined with being able to like go back to a university setting and kind of bring some of that training back to it was, was super important. And, and uh, something that I, I really enjoyed. So just having the training kind of from Glenn's system, from uh, Chris Green and some of the other uh, some of the other people who were around us, uh, like I mentioned, Paul Armbruster was there as well, but just like pushing us in a certain way and trying to think about a uh, broader context uh, broader uh, as part of the game. And then sometimes you get so wrapped up in, oh, I have to do this and I have to do that instead of just... Um, of feeling the game and enjoying it still there, there's it's a really fine balance it's really tough to to uh strike that that in between of like hey focus and this is 
our game plan, this is how we're going to execute it to sometimes you have to, uh, you know, manage what you can execute and how you can, how you can do it and not get so caught up in, oh, it has to be like this and this and this, because then you're predetermining what needs to happen instead of uh, feeling the end. Yeah, just to pull on that for a second, because I remember when we had Brett Walsh on the show, he mentioned he's at a Volleyball Canada tryout and he actually doesn't get selected. And in his debrief, Glenn even, he didn't call him out, but he definitely mentioned me like, huh, I, I thought you'd be more creative and more willing to like sling it. And Walsh is like, I thought you didn't want that. That's my game. That's what I do. I want to set with flow and I want to do all these things. So with, with you coming from that Volleyball Canada system where you're right, Glenn is very science driven, very data driven. Like there's a reason why you're doing every little thing. How did you find the balance of being in flow and being tactical? Like, and like you said, not having your mind made up before the pass is even made about this is the matchup I want to do, right? Like, where is the art of setting under a system that's so, so well prepped, so well organized and wants this matchup that like, you don't feel like robotic and you're just going to do this decision because that's what the game plan said to do. Well, I think uh, as a younger player, you have to strike the balance and, and as you mature, then you really get both. Like, it's not supposed to be a system where it's like, boom, 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 and this is everything that we have to do. It's a lot of, um, you still need to be able to feel the game and, you know, having the creative creativity in the aspect. Like, the best camps that I ever had were, like, a B-team third-year tryout uh, J. Like, I had played most of the year. J kind of came in in nationals, and then we won that year in national championships. But I felt like... That year and the year after, when I played like a mix of different positions, wasn't really setting. I went into the camp and was just like, what do I have to lose? Like, I'm just going to go and play, you know, enjoy my time here. I still, I've, I've played with these guys my, my whole life. Literally, I have nothing to lose. And that was some of the best times I've, I've set and uh, showed up at a camp. So it's certainly not like, you know all this science uh, driven, but you can get creative within the boundaries. So I think uh, as a younger player, you, you may be overcorrect, or at least I may be overcorrected at one time. And then you kind of leave it into your system and your, your own style of play. And I think Jay's done a fantastic job at that as well, because he, I think he plays his best when he's putting himself as an offensive threat. Like he brings a totally different dimension to the game. Uh, and when we were going up, like that kind of got, oh, I don't know. Like he, he, it seemed like he second guessed it in the international context. Um, and then when he's gone back in and kind of like weave those two extremes together, like what makes him comfortable and how he plays well in, in a system, it's like, you know, that's why setters get better when they're older. Uh, it takes that, that maturity and that timing to, to really find yourself within a system. You're, you're trying to play and then you're probably overcorrecting on a bunch of different sides as you're trying to find that balance. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. And I am curious with Jay coming in in your third year, which sounds like it was kind of your spot to have, like, how do you look back at your career as a setter and say, like, do you coexist with the other guy? Or you always feel like you're competing with the other guy? Like I almost compared to like a, a goalie in other sports, but really you can only have one. If you have two setters, you have no setters. You kind of got to know you're the guy and who the guy's going to be. Right. So how did you feel about that season? Like, did you know of Jay? Did you know that he was tearing up the college scene and was going to come to UFC? Like, what was kind of your first impression that year? And what was the the battle going on inside the practice gym? So we uh, we had competed against each other our whole careers before that. Like, it was no secret. We played on provincial teams together. Our NGCC uh, championship, uh, like, I started that one, and he wasn't 
he wasn't the, the full-time setter there. Then, you know, throughout university, uh, third year was kind of the pivot point. He came in at Nationals, did a fantastic job, and we won. Um, and that was just a change after, like, losing a couple sets. He came in and played and played really well. When we were first coming in, I think Terry McDonald would be the first one to see it through our system. We didn't let it, each other off the hook for anything. Like we'd be doing passing drills and and uh, it'd be like, mm, that wasn't perfect enough. Better go again for 10. <laughs> like just being somewhat fixed to each other, but definitely like making sure that everything was perfect and, and competing against each other. I think in that environment, it's it. the best thing that can come out of it is both of us at the end of the like our time there, I, I think Jay looks fondly on it as well. Like it was just a constant competition. And in my fourth year, I, I started like a, I had to change my mindset a little bit and I did a little bit more uh, academic uh, things. I had like a class, so I had to miss, you know, a practice here or there. Um, and then I came in and played different positions. I'm like, what, what's it going to take to get us both on the court here? Cause that's kind of, like, you know, we're, we're, waiting for it with the circumstance i rose and we had one instance the year in 2010 where we played a 6-2 at a christmas tournament because we had one guy down with an ankle and and another guy had mono and we're just like all right let's get us both out there and and do it we super enjoyed uh looking back on it i think at the time we were both you know young competitive guys that were willing to run over anyone to get the position and, and to be able to compete and play. And he came in and just said, I'm, we're going to compete every day pretty much. So I think as a younger athlete, I think when I saw him come in, it was just kind of like, what? Like, why, why would you come here? Uh, I didn't really understand the choice. Um, and then found out after the fact that he just said, I'm going to come in and compete against me every day. We were the two junior national team setters. You know, we, we competed nonstop with each other and that obviously made to a, a fruitful career for, I would say, both of us. And, and he's still playing and doing great. Um, so I hope that still looked fun on by him as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm curious, it sounds like you both handled it really maturely, like you were going to be competitive and go at it, but it doesn't sound like it ever really boiled over or got selfish. But I'm curious when you look back, like, is it because you knew of him and you were always competing at these levels? Like if he was just a different guy who came in and fought you for the spot, like how do you turn the switch where you're going to battle for every single practice, but like when you go to a team dinner or you're hanging out on the bus, like you're not being a, a jerk about it at those times, you know, like how guys just can't separate the two. Like was, was there any strategies that you and Jay had that were like, everyone's going to be better if we just headbutt here, but like it, it's going to be a long season because you're going to do it every single practice, right? Yeah. I don't know if there was any, like, I don't know on his part, I don't think there was any like intentional um, effort that we made uh, to, to change or do anything else. Um, he wasn't, he, he wasn't the first guy that I was calling to go for a beer after practice, but uh, you know, it wasn't like we were attached to the hip by any means, but there was like, uh, I mean, depends on your judgment if I'm going to use the word comfortable tension, but there was enough tension in the gym that it was pretty uh, uh, consistent on both sides. But what that did was every time you're on either side of the, the practice uh, squad, like it is the only the other setter is going to elevate the level no matter what, because he's pushing on stuff. 
Um, so I don't think there was any like too much awkward tension. There was maybe at a few given times, but uh, nothing that wasn't like, hey, you're going to say my piece. I'm going to say, or I'm going to say mine, you say yours. And then it's kind of done after. So I'm curious with you being a pro guy and obviously coming through Calgary with like two dynamite setters. Have you ever been in what's called like a competitive cauldron, which is this big thing taken over like youth sports where we're actually going to like put on the board who won more drills that day and who did it. And like some youth clubs have started like this is how we're going to pick the starting lineup. But uh, I'm curious, it wasn't really like a a buzzworthy thing when you were playing, but I'm curious, like, did you keep track in your own head about like, hey, I got I got three today. You got one. Like, was it that competitive that like when you're across the net, like it it doesn't matter if coach is keeping score, I'm keeping score. Yeah. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Like that wasn't I I like the idea of this competitive cauldron thing, but yeah, that was just organic. Like that was happening no matter what. Uh, there wasn't going to be a, a time when you didn't call out the score or make sure that like you, you knew who won, uh, essentially won the day, won the practice, whatever it was. Um, so it was, it was pretty constant. And do you feel like that helped you as a leader? Because no matter what six you were given you wanted to win the drill right so did coach kind of like switch the lineups and go sometimes you're at the one sometimes you're at the two sometimes it's even on both sides like did, did that help you get the most out of everybody because like you said you wanted to win everything no matter who was on your team but did were the coaches aware of that and they started to plan and kind of get it working for the team as well uh i think certainly at our national team and summers together that was definitely the case because you just have a bunch of talented guys in the gym and they're all going at it there's everybody's on the clean slate like where you perform at that level it doesn't matter as much i think when you get into university season sometimes you do have a little bit more of a set uh roster or something like that but it's not to say that the uh second side can't kick the crap out of the first side uh (laughs) given time (laughs) Uh, there wasn't as much like rotation of players, I would say, in, at UFC, like just bouncing around different lineups. There were some, but it was a little bit more like you would expect, like, hey, we're going to shift this left side here and, um, you know, make minor changes. But it wasn't like, you know, material, a constant revolving door. And when you were at the national team, did you also treat it like a head-to-head? Because, yeah, you're with Jay, but maybe some drills or some tryouts are going to be with TJ, and then Dustin's there, and then maybe Houghton's there. Like, all these guys are changing, and everybody's at such a high level. Like, could you just flip the switch that if you're in a drill, and even if it's, like, maybe it's Dustin Snyder who's a little bit older than you and you haven't seen him as much, you're like, I'm going to beat you this drill. Like, is it that type of mindset as a setter to be always looking across the net and trying to find a way for your side to get that win? I think you have to. Um I don't think there's another way to approach it as a setter. And I think when I did try and change that approach, uh, when I started playing professionally and, and, you know, try and work with guys during a practice rather than win the drill, I think my, my play decreased instead of just being like, I'm going to walk in and win this drill no matter what happens. And we're going to take that as like the anchor uh, what we're trying to accomplish here and it's not like oh I want to get a little bit more touch with this guy like big drills for that but I think when I was trying to get into game setting uh, maybe training too much to build a, a complete um, team especially in the pro pro side where you you usually have uh, you know a system that you have to play in based on people's skills and you're not really going to like change that mid-season as much but yeah when when Dustin was there and i he was injured one of the years uh, with his knee, so he was there for my FTC year as well. Uh, in the second half, I believe, like learned a lot from him uh, and him versus how it's in like having totally different styles and Brock uh, 
uh, being, you know, such a coach uh, mind and, and how he wants to train was eating off all those older guys was, was awesome. Couldn't uh, replicate my experience at all. And just talking some of the, the games, their experiences playing pro, uh, getting yourself kind of ready for what that life looked like was, was uh, an important environment to be in. And for any setters listening or, or even coaches listening, I'm curious, is there a conflict point between uh, like trying to win the drill and your development? Like maybe definitely not at the national team because there's so many d- gifted guys and maybe not even at the university level. But let's say at the club level, if you're just trying to win the drill, let's just call it what it is. If you set Rudy every ball, you're probably going to win that version of the wash drill, right? So maybe that would be an example where winning the drill wasn't best for your development because you didn't learn an overload or a spread or getting everybody involved, right? But Looking back as a setter, is there any advice you would give that like, yeah, you want to win every single drill, but you have to be aware of like this, like maybe the Rudy example is the only one I can think of right now, but the, was there ever a challenge where you're like, I need to work on this at game speed. So I might have to lose this drill or be willing to be more competitive versus if I just set this guy, I'm going to win the drill no matter what. I think when I got older and into the national team environment, I think I probably adjusted too much into, oh, I might do this and that with not having that win winning mindset as a focus. I I would say now, uh, no, I would say, you know, Ru- Rudy was a, a middle at the time, you know, shifted to outside, shifted to, to opposite. Um, and just like his mind for the game and his focus is like un- unparalleled, like just such an amazing teammate to play with. Um, I would say set him the whole time. If he's scoring and no one is stopping him, then that's on the other team. If they haven't adapted and they haven't done anything different, then they need to figure it out. And as soon as they start like cramping all together and trying to help and do different things, that's when you open up the whole game. That's when you're everybody, the whole team is focused. Like all oh, of these guys killing us. We need to change something. We need to do something. And you take them out of their comfort zone. So why would you let your foot off the gas when Rudy's like, if Rudy's just killing them, then wait until they finally do something about it. And then I'll burn you with an overload or I'll burn you with, you know, a a pipe over top of Rudy or I'll I'll change your timing or do something different and start to separate and get other guys involved. And it's important when you're, you're trying to do something to the extreme. And I think TJ mentioned in one of his uh, interviews that might have been on on here as well. Like just, I'm going to set the, you know, the left side the whole time. Like let's see what it takes to go to the extreme and just change um, you know, how the team is approaching or like, oh, no, he has to set this at some point. You're kind of like, does he? Like, they're, they're just winning. Like, I've, I've played played with one guy in, in Duran who's played with Blair quite a bit. He was my roommate, a Chilean guy opposite um, Sebastian Giver. Literally, I played a whole set where every side out ball, I, I gave it to him. He had a great tempo. He was absolutely killing them. He has a crazy fast uh, arm. He's a, a lefty and he just cuts balls off. And I was just shooting him like frozen ropes behind me and nobody stopped him. So they even started getting like two blocks, like starting to shift, starting to shift. And he, he just felt it. He was in the zone and we went to set and then everybody started shifting the next set and you open up the whole thing. again. So I just, I think the whole point is if someone, someone's going and you're winning the game, then it's up to the other team to adapt. Like you're in the driver's seat. 
Yeah, for sure. And where does your mind go in those situations? Are you keeping track of like every decision the blocker makes? Are you just in tune with somebody on the bench? Because as you're explaining that, I'm nodding my head and I'm remembering to when we had Dustin Snyder on the show. He's like, listen, I played with Gavin and everybody in the gym knew he was going to get the most volume, but I still had to run my middle on a 31 and I had to make it seem like I was going to go to him. Whether it was like one in every 12 balls, I had to make the other team middle think that that was going to be a threat at some point just to give Gavin a gap, right? So are you are you looking apart that, that much where you're like, okay, at the end of the game, if this guy doesn't have the most volume, that's on me because he's our best player and he deserves volume, but I still need to create him space or tempo and keep him in rhythm. So are you keeping like little tallies of like what the middle's doing against you or how much are you in flow versus like overthinking what they're doing as a response to you? Yeah, I think it's like small, it's small sound bites. If you try and take in information on, on, you know, every play, it's difficult to try and adjust and change uh, each time. If someone's like, Oh, well, he, he snuck over like this time around. And is it going to be a pattern or is it just, them trying to take a, an unnecessary risk maybe, or, or that it's a planned risk for the team because two of those things you have to react differently. One is, you know, that maybe they're starting to catch on or two, it's like the end of the set and they're just going to plant two guys on them and see, but I think as Dusty mentioned also, like you said on the perfect ball, like <laughs> there's not too many guys that are really kind of like getting in space about it. Like there's, there's few people, at their, their peak that were like and some of the top like Polish players like Kubiak, Winiarski, like even if you set over them uh, and you set him the, the, the perfect ball, it was like, oh, I'll take that. But certainly, yeah, you, you constantly want to set up, I think at an international level, being more um, system focused and uh, you have to keep guys honest. I think that a you know, university or club level, sometimes you can just play with the, the same guy, but but if it's not if it's not automatic, you can't do it. You can't just set that guy because he's your best player. But if he's still making errors and he's still getting blocked, that's when you really have to, you know, lean on someone. There's very few people in the world that you can just be like, I'm gonna set this guy and it's probably gonna be my best opportunity to score. Um, so it is a, a super, super fun. And do you ever feel as a setter, it's your role to keep guys engaged? Like, let's just use a wild example of maybe your M2 is not that offensively gifted, but if you don't set him, he's not going to work his tail off to close blocks and really be a horse out there, right? So is it your job to really be in other guys' heads, making sure that they're fired up? Because I think as a middle blocker, it's it's not fun just closing blocks all games. You want to feel like you're contributing or at least getting your guys one-on-ones or getting points, right? So do you feel like that's on you or is that the middle's responsibility to be like, you have a job, do your job. It's not my job to make sure you're having fun or you're engaged right now. Like how far does the reach of the setter leading the court go, do you think? That's the whole job. Like you have to walk in and yeah, he's maybe not the most offensive player that you have on your team. You have to keep them involved in some way, shape, or form. Like the examples that I'm using on the extremes are literally the the nth extreme. But when you're actually running a full a full team of full offense, like you have to get them sets, you have to keep them involved. And if you're not, then you better be talking to them and saying, like, I know I haven't set you yet. It's gonna come. Like I know I screwed that up. Or when you saw an opportunity and you didn't set them, and you look at the middle after, and you're like, I should have set you. Like telling them that is keeping them involved. Knowing that you're you're playing the game and keeping each player involved and like in their, you know, as the top of your mind should be t- completely part of the game. Yeah. Uh, and I think the best setters can get 
that out of their hitters. And as you, you know, go up and up in the level, maybe you have to give them less attention or, you know, everybody's firing on all cylinders and, and doing their job. But I think at every level still, making sure that you have a guy that's involved all the time, or knowing the best time when you need to set them and communicating, communicating to them uh, all the time and, and taking their feedback. If they say, hey, the middle left that time, you're like, you're right. Should have set you. Like, I'll get you next time. Yeah, this this is awesome. Every high level Saturday on the show, we always just dive down the rabbit hole. So this is great. And I am curious, like Derek App really opened up my world to this about like, you see setters looking and you kind of never know what they're looking at. But then when he explained that, like, I'm looking for a middle lean or I'm looking for the five guy to creep up, like it's interesting how much some guys see. And then it's interesting that some guys don't even really care what's going on over there. So with you. When you're when you get a good pass and you have you're in rhythm and you do take a peek, like what were you honestly looking for? Was it like the left side helping? Was it a middle lean? Like what's the information you can gather that you could then make a decision off of, like in that short amount of time, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple uh, a couple areas where that we can dissect that. One is mostly on video. You should have a pretty good idea of how the players move, both from a defensive side and then just their blocking systems. Um, so where are they going to pinch? Is this guy going to like be more aggressive on the left side to like move in when you're in the front row? And, and I mean, at the national team and and international level, most guys are loaded, able to get their hands up and, and slow something down. If it's not executed or, you know, they'll hold in the middle and read and, and, you know, at at a different level, I think in university you can catch guys with, uh, not being loaded, you know, these are straight Their Their hands are super high and you're like, okay, well, if our middle, like if Graham's going to connect on a ball, like you're not going to stop them. So either be loaded and ready to slow them down or we'll just run this all day until you decide to commit and do something about it. Um, so the peak is either like for, for me, it was seeing where the left side was on my shoulder or the middle, like, are they following? And you can kind of feel them as you move. Um, are they, are they walking with you? Are they trying to shorten the court and then you can set reverse or if you're, you know, you're moving back and you can look and you see that they're staying in the middle then the middle coming on top of you instead, is really just overloading your, your, uh, left side walker on the other side. So it's more like high level movements rather than like, Oh, I saw him, I saw him fake or something like that. Like you're not really. I, I don't think uh, you're going to see that and be able to react and like have that in your mind if you haven't seen it before, one on video. And then two, uh, it's like a couple of very small cues that can really um, change what your decision is at any given time. But you know that, you know, when I move forward to position four, if no one's coming, then, you know, the middle is going to be able to hit the hole. Or you're going to be able to overload the outside guy if he does. So um, understanding if the outside guy is going to help or if he's starting to release and things like that uh, are really real. And when you're working with younger athletes or just talking to other setters, at what point would you encourage this? Because I think every setter is going to agree, you have to set a hittable ball. It doesn't matter how tricky or sneaky you are. If it's not a good ball, you made a poor decision, right? Even if everything else added up. So uh, at what point do you think, and don't get me wrong, I'm not asking for like, oh, when they're in 15 you, they can decide this. But like, at what point of their development when they can do certain things, should they start being tactical versus just set a hittable ball every single time? I mean... Like when, when do you think you learned the peak and, and started paying attention to like, are they on your shoulder? Or are they not like, when was that really something you were looking for? And actually be able to use it. Yeah. Um, like, 
18, 18U. I think it, uh, at NTC, like at the National Team Challenge Cup tournament that we had, we ran a play where we would intentionally overload the right side blocker. So that was like literally training and Jay and I would literally walk across the net and just like watch if they were going to come. And then uh, what, what happened, because everybody's just trying to learn a bunch block in U18 for, for a lot of it and get used to that, we'd run like a little overload and it would just be a, uh, oftentimes a, a no blocker. If you saw everyone move, then you were just going to set the distance um, back. So that was like the first time that I remember training that. Uh, and it was an intentional play to pass it more to position. And then it, it started to happen a little bit later, but at the end of the day, and and uh, uh, Larry would, uh, McKay was probably one of the best at this because he would tell Jay and I in practice, like, if you're not going to take the risk now, then when are you going to do it? It's not going to come into a game. So, yeah, it's got to be a hittable ball, but you have to, like, play with these little nuances and, like, really wanted to understand what you were thinking. And was that a good decision? And he kind of, like, he had this hilarious way of, like inceptioning you, was that a good idea or not? And sometimes you'd walk away from the conversations and be like, I don't know if you thought that was good or I don't know if you thought that was bad. And you would just like deadpan you and like turn around and be like, okay, I guess that was okay then. Is there anything about was that good or not? And he would tell, he would reinforce things like that. He's like, wow, that was really nice. And then we just like let you continue, but really wanted to understand like how you're, your mental uh, state was and what you were thinking about. Yeah, that was going to be my next question with Larry or, or what other coaches can do. Like, was it just because he was so frequent and he did point out when you were doing good that it wasn't every time he asked you that, you didn't feel like you were attacked? Like, he's just asking me this question to see what I think and then he's going to, like, bite my head off? Like, it wasn't It wasn't. he was only talking to you when it was bad. He would talk to you when it's good. But is that not a fine line for a coach to be like, Kieran, why'd you do that there? Like <laughs> I, I mean, if you, if anyone's met Larry, he has like such a way of communicating that's really just a thoughtful expression anytime he speaks. So I don't know if it's in his delivery or how he interacts with, with people in general, but he's such a, uh, he's constantly like thinking about how you're thinking about it. <laughs> so he wants to kind of get inside how you're, you're approaching something, uh, uh, at least I thought he probably would tell you something totally different. He was just like commenting on a very simple play that we made and, you know, thought it was good. But uh, as a player, it felt like he was really um, invested in that kind of side of the game and wanted to see everyone, you know, take risks when the time was appropriate. If you watch like Argentina play in the Olympics, like the Checo has all the license in the world to be as creative as possible. And everybody's just, going to do their best. So he was setting some balls where you were like, yeah, that's, uh, that's aggressive. And sometimes like I saw him set one in the antenna, like just fire one in the antenna that has the memory of a goldfish as soon as that happens and continue to push things with like creativity and risk taking when appropriate. So, um, totally different styles, but watching some of those guys play and having coaches that made you feel uh, comfortable and able to um, kind of express how you wanted to play the game within the confines was super important to us. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost comparing it maybe to football, where I think the quarterbacks who do the best is because they usually have an offensive coordinator or head coach who's going to play calls to their, to, or excuse me, who's going to call plays to their strengths. So, is that something as a setter you deliberately try to do, whether you're playing pro or you were with the national team? Like, 
this is what I'm comfortable doing. I love reversing the flow or I love this overload or I like this situation. And then the coach at least knows versus if they're just watching and they set you or they watch you make this radical set and your guy gets slammed, at least you can go, okay, Kieran saw this and he wanted to do this. Or does everything lead to a conversation? You know what I mean? Like, how do you stay on the same page that when you do this radical thing and it doesn't go well, that like, it's not instantly a timeout being like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Also a uh, pretty fine line. I think, uh, uh, it's difficult to, it, it, there's two different ways that you can approach it. One is making sure that in practice you have the license to do it. And if it's not working, you can't keep doing it. it, it you made the experiment. Don't think it's good just because it looks cool or like it's creative. Sometimes creativity doesn't work. So try it. It doesn't work. Then you kind of go back and you, you continue to learn the game and maybe there's something else that you can try, but when you get into a game situation, you have to be able to, to have the outlet if you need to. Uh, and, and you see something all of a sudden, uh, something creative. And, and I think as a, as a coach's uh, role as well, it's making sure that you're keeping, uh, depending on if the set of trends towards like being way too, you know, creative and out there during a game, like trying to meet that to a degree. And then as they feel comfortable, like build it up. I think, um, I really did a lot better when I like got the flow of the game going and then I could start doing those things and not doing it, you know, right out of the offer um, and starting to kind of feel it, feel the game. It's tough to say on point number four that you could be able to walk in and, and do something, you know, because you haven't seen how the team's reacting. You haven't seen, uh, is this guy starting to help more? Like those creative moments are more so when uh, you've seen a tendency throughout the match and you're communicating about it. You're like, hey, this uh, this opposite's starting to release a lot. Or like, let's try and run a 33. He's not even watching. He's just watching the ball so we can burn him and, and bring the guy inside um, and that type of stuff. But it's, it's um, I think, more of a communication than it is just a pure feeling like, oh, this is going to work at this time. Yeah, and I, I think that's the challenge no matter what level you're playing at is just kind of like layering the game plan. So I'm curious you go out like the lineups there and you're kind of like, Oh, we have this rotation. We have this matchup, but how do you layer the game plan so much that you're like, Oh, if we, I, I don't know, run the middle on a 30 and set the right side. That's the most simple one I can think of. But like, if you do that the whole match, they're going to adjust. Right. So do you ever find yourself running it a little in the beginning and then like wait till 17 to run it. And then, you know, it's going to be there later on. Like, is there a way of managing your tactical game plan without giving it away because i think when we talked about the extremes right like gavin's going to get a ton of volume and we're going to do that all match but maybe there's a matchup that you can't run the whole match because once the other team bites on it and adjusts they're going to have the advantage so was there anything you felt like you wanted to show and then save or or how do you find those balances of like getting that situation when you need to score a big point yeah i think a lot of the the game planning just has to follow the appropriate strategy with each, uh, it, you can kind of start and then it's constantly like shifting and communicating. You kind of have like a base, like, Hey, we're going to run a 31 base and we're going to start by setting a middle, uh, time or something like that. Uh, because we know that their middle is going to stay very neutral and just try and react. So we're going to set the, the middle and he's just going to spike our one six team. And we're going to start off. Like if we're all in rhythm, that's how we're going to manage it. But I think having a hard and fast, you know, maybe we cut it off into thirds, each part of the game into thirds. But um, I, I found the more I tried to structure that type of stuff um, outside of like a broad understanding of how I was going to 
set against the other team. That's when I got caught up in those details and like, oh, it has to be rigid. Like, oh, I hit this phase of the game and I have to do this and I have to do this. And it's like, mm. no, like we started the first half of the game and our, our, uh, our passing was off the net and we weren't really in system. So the whole thing kind of goes to crap until you, you can kind of get into a rhythm and you have an idea of what that rhythm is going to look like. But it's it can't be so rigid as saying like, first eight points, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. Know, ideal world uh but volleyball's the furthest thing from ideal world you're playing in a game of randomness at all times so there's there's game plan creativity and then there's like athletic creativity that you can weave into it when you need to but those are two very separate uh buckets that you know you follow the general framework of a game plan and then you, you dive in um to maybe some of the the details and creativity and setting things up you know, based on the parameters that you set for yourself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your mindset and just getting back to your career. I'm curious how FTC fit into your development and getting you pro ready because, uh, again, you and I were talking before the show, we just had Dallas Sunius on the show and you wouldn't have had a chance to listen to it yet. But, uh, I thought it was very interesting. His FTC year, they only had five guys, so they couldn't even play against, like, I think it's popular to play against some of the RSEQ guys or maybe some OUA teams will go to Gatineau, so you get some gameplay stuff where his was purely training and he thought he got way stronger and they were lifting and doing, like, a lot of rep stuff. So I know you were a few cycles after him, but FTC was still kind of young in your era. Like, were, what was the makeup of the squad? How many guys were there as a setter? Like, how many reps were you getting versus gameplay stuff? Like, just t- take me through your experience because I think – we're spoiled now that guys are getting contracts out of U sports and out of the CCAA where I don't think that was a normal thing, like going back 10 years. Right. So was FTC needed for your development? And then what was it like being a setter in that environment of like, let's get stronger. Let's get a million touches today. Oh yeah. Uh, FTC is an interesting one for setters in particular. I think some uh, guys who haven't had an international experience for sure. Getting that structure built around you, and, and getting the base for your, your body to go overseas and play a full season uh, can certainly have its, its benefits. I think the biggest thing for setters, though, is gameplay. Um, our FTC year, we had uh, a really strong group as well. I uh, did Pan Am Games in 2011. A lot of our B team that stuck around uh, and did the full FTC cycle. So we had a pretty good uh, squad from the summer that just kind of rolled into to our FTC team. Uh, and then the next year was like, uh, Jay Graham Blair or no Blair was with me. Sorry. And then like the, the Hogs were there and, and they also had a very strong year. So we had two essentially in a row FTC years that were, I think quite strong and had a lot of guys go and play, but for a setter, um, you, you definitely, we, we didn't get as many games. And I think that, uh, took you almost out of a, a game frame like mindset as, as much. So, I, I mean, I think if I could have gotten a contract, maybe I went, I tried to go halfway through the year um, to a Belgian team and it didn't work out. But um, it was certainly a lot of training. And when you came back, you, you know, you felt stronger, you felt better, but at the setter, sometimes it's more the brain training than it is the physical training. And I felt, I felt pretty, uh, in, in good shape, like good to go and play. Uh, and I wouldn't have traded the NM games experience and the full FTC experience. That was kind of our path at the time. 
I think if I was going through university now, maybe that maybe that changes. Maybe if you do get, you know, some guys are getting contracts like Lepke and Coppers who are going into top leagues right off the, the bat. And it's like, yeah, you know, you're you're good enough to go and play there and go and, and play and and uh, you know really take it in. Because <laughs> that was not the case for a lot of guys uh, coming out of it. I would have loved to have uh, continued to play right after. But FTC certainly is a good safe haven for guys coming back from injuries um, that need to rehab and still need to train. And I think that whole system that kind of Glenn built out to really adjust guys into a, a pro game, get more people into our national team uh, environment and our cycle so that we have, I don't even know how many pro guys we have playing right now, but it's like probably five times <laughs> more than what it was uh back when like Brock and Dallas and uh those guys were just starting to play because they were the first kind of cycle uh, and then uh, again you mentioned coppers and Lepke and and all these guys leaving school and getting deals so with your pathway how was it getting that first deal in Slovenia like you mentioned the Belgium thing came up and that just kind of fell through so was it your agent who was really chasing it did you talk to other guys you knew who were overseas like how does this come together because I think everybody has a unique story about how they got their first deal yeah um mine was through uh Thielen Komisernik who was uh our strength coach of the B team he's a Slovenian guy from this town and he was coaching and, and I think recently left uh, Glenn's team in Arcus like two years ago, maybe, um, but was part of this town and he knew that they were getting a team together. So it was kind of a fresh Slovenian uh, team with a new big sponsor. Um, so they wanted to bring in a couple foreign players, which was a great in to have, like got me the experience. Uh, our year was subpar i had a rolled ankle in preseason then i had and this is a psa for everyone trying to do an international hitting warm up uh a brazilian teammate decided to uncork a, a 30 onto my face and i was about two meters off the net we were running both sides of the net so lights went out and uh i was concussed for quite a while oh shoot so when you're doing international hitting warm-ups let everyone know who's hitting in the one um probably came back a little bit too soon from that because I was the foreign player. We had literally a team of high school kids and then like a few professional guys. Uh, you know, room was buzzing. Uh, I could barely have lights on. Uh, started like shortness of breath and then started playing. They didn't have any concussion protocols. I started playing again after three weeks and just like didn't feel great, but continued to play. And uh, this season, like, just started going really sour. Like, we lost a couple, a uh, couple games, and I was like, kind of wobbly after. And and uh, by the end of the season, it was it was fine, but there was certainly like a really, really rough pasture. Yeah, how do you get through something like that? Because again, just by doing this show, I'm hearing from guys that like, as a pro athlete, you have way more free time than you ever expected. It's basically like you're in university, but now you don't have school. Like, you have that much free time. Maybe guys on your team don't speak the language. Like you're you're trying to call home, but the time difference makes it hard. Like adding an injury to that, like how are you getting through this? Because that's got to be pretty challenging to take away the thing you're there to do, and now you can't do that, and, and you're so far from home. Like, what were some strategies you did to get through that so you just weren't absolutely miserable? Uh, yeah, that that was uh, pretty mentally draining. 
both from that and then there were issues within the team and uh, like in the, the management side of the team. Um, I brought, I made sure, and in university I started to do this as well, like setting all my goals that I wanted to have for uh, volleyball-wise, school-wise, and then personal-wise. So I did that my first year and made sure that I checked off everything else that I could. Um, so I brought a ukulele and learned it. Um, Gordon and I, hopefully he comes back to Toronto soon. We'll uh, play some jams. He's on the guitar. I'm on the ukulele. Um, and uh, trying to read as many books, obviously, when you're concussed, it's like another level because you have no like, mental capacity either. I think um, making sure that you're devoting time to other things uh, is good for the mind and your, your soul, like devoting every time and every piece that you have into volleyball, just rest your mental state on a game. Like, Hey, I played really, I played really bad last game. And that's really tough to shake when you're, you're there to get paid and you're there to uh, win games for the team. Like it's rest on your shoulders. So uh, you have to find creative outlets to um, or at least I did like find creative outlets, either continuing to learn I played or I, I wrote a couple like financial certifications, like tried to do something academic, something uh, musical, and then continue to, to read and dive into other things. But sometimes you have to be careful what you read too. Like I tried to read Russian literature, would not recommend. <laughs> You're overseas, like crime and punishment, don't read that. Don't read that. Just uh, put it down after a little. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you really had to like balance uh, what was going on in your, your mind and outside of sports. And then also how you were going to continue to keep focus outside of the sport and make your identity a little bit more about uh, a holistic view rather than just being there to play sport. And then how did the, the Duran opportunity come together? Cause I think playing there for two years, did you get a two year deal or you did well after the first year? Like was it one at a time and they just chose to keep you? And then was the other thing that helped your decision was, uh, I was trying to look before the show. You played with a couple Canadians there, right? So that must have helped you feel like a little bit more at home with not only English speakers, but guys that you already knew, right? Because yeah. was Blair not there the one year you were there? Yeah, I mean, we had... If you're walking into an ideal professional situation, that's got to be it. Uh, Duran's a, a fantastic team, super friendly to Canadians. They used to, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I think, they would do swaps in Alberta. So they would come play U of A, UC, Red Deer, uh, Mount Royal, and all the colleges. And I think they went up to Grand Prairie a couple times as well. And then they, like, um, university teams would go over to Germany and do the same thing. Uh, that hasn't happened as much in our generation anymore, I would say. But back in that that time, they did. So they, they billeted Canadians. Like, they had loved having Canadians there. The opportunity came to go there from... Blair. Uh, so he was there his first year while I was in Slovenia. Uh, we continued, like, we're still close uh, and good friends. And um, he stood up during my wedding, which is pretty cool as well. And he, uh, yeah, he brought me over to Duran. He had left. He went to Nantes uh, the year after and then came back to Duran um, after that. So the opportunity was really, like, almost word of mouth, like, to a degree at that time. Uh, I think Blair, you know, they were looking at me before and then Blair said, yeah, bring him in. So I went there after the season. Uh, I'm in March. Our season ended in Slovenia a little bit earlier. Went there, did a quick tryout, and then um, they they signed me. And then I, I signed a one-year deal after. They asked if I wanted one or two. And 
Uh, at the time, I said one. I wanted to maybe explore another country heading into the Olympics or, or whatnot. Uh, and I decided to do one. And then um, that year, their current setter, um, actually both years, we had uh, five North Americans my first year there and then three, or, yeah, three of us the next year. So it was really a uh, good environment to be in. We had Eric Madsen, uh, Steve Hunt, and then two American guys, AJ Nally and, and Evan. Uh, they were my first year, and then the second year was myself and Blair, and uh, who's our other, I don't know if we had another Canadian guy, actually. So we, we just had a really good uh, good crew, and the Germans there were awesome. Yeah, it, it's great to hear you kind of go through Germany and have a good experience after what you dealt with, with in Slovenia. And, and again, just through doing the show, I'm curious... When you get off the plane, how much does the team know about you and your style? Because Dustin Steider mentioned he signed with the team and they didn't want to play the same style he did. Like, let's say just for he, he likes to set ABC and they wanted XYZ. And it's like, but why did you sign me then? Because that's not my game. That's not what I want to do. So did you feel like your agent communicated well or the manager had watched tape and like your gifts were going to be this team system? Or did you find yourself having to change to what the coach wanted? Yeah, I think... The Slovenia year, all of a sudden they wanted me to change, change up a style. And I think I was a, a victim, like I was saying before, of like, hey, I need to work with this player and I need to do this and in practice and that kind of stuff. And I didn't really come in and just because because our team was so lopsided, like we had three professional players, and the rest were like roundouts, like the mailman from the city and like <laughs> a high school kid and like one guy who is super, you know, had played professionally for like 20 years, but was 40 years old. So we had like this really weird lopsidedness and I tried to round it out. And I think just going in and being like, oh, yeah, probably would have been a better approach for that. Um, the German coach for both of my years wanted something that was unrealistic, I'll call it, uh, <laughs> setting wise. And me and the American guy both came in and he was like literally running a 32 position for like it was a frozen rope. And the only guy who could hit it on our team was Steve Hunt because he's just so athletic and hangs in the air. But it was like, you can still see it in the American style. Like DeFalco runs this like absolute laser and it's just hanging in the air. And uh, like not too many guys can do that. And he, we had like this older German guy. I mean, he's old, older. We call him Grandpa Fun. He's like 30. Uh, <laughs> at the time, we're like 20. But like we had guys who just can't hit that ball, and and it's so much variability. And he was like harping on this in our second game. The American guy was playing, and he like we beat Berlin in four. He was like, "See, this is how like this is how it's gonna work. This is not gonna do it." Well, like this is like a flash in the pan. Like you can't tell me that we're gonna be able to manage this this style of play. Like it's just so high risk at all times. Um, so we had to like definitely balance out both of that kind of stuff uh and then it's a really tough like argument <laughs> not argument but like you're trying to bring someone over and be like hey this is how we can play and be more effective and they have an idea in their head but i think that happens especially for setters more often than not like they think they're getting one thing and they like look at a highlight video and a little bit of tape and for a lot of people in in europe they maybe aren't as like detailed into the game some coaches are great and, and managers and teams and GMs and all that kind of stuff. But others are like, yeah, you, you look pretty good. 
So as, as you're going through this pro season, um, did you feel like you had a the similar relationship with this American guy as you did with Jay? Like, did you feel like you were competing with him and you were battling or did you kind of get a sense that, you know, you'd given it a shot, like you wanted to play pro, but you were starting to pursue other things, whether you wanted to go back to school or whether you wanted to focus on your career. Like, did you have the same edge and competitiveness or did you kind of know that this was maybe going to be your last pro experience and you wanted to like phase out a little bit and you weren't as, you know, willing to headbutt with the teammate maybe as you would have been in your younger days? Yeah. Uh, no, I think it was still all cylinder firing, uh, both with the American guy and then we had a German guy come in as well, uh, who's still their setter there. Um, and, and both years, it was kind of like we split time. I'd start for, you know, I think I started for like 70% of the games and they'd play him for one and him for another. And uh, with with the coach, you know, he's an older guy. He didn't really, like, his English was okay, but didn't really, like, explain, you know, what he want, like, the system or what he wanted and, like, didn't, you know, have a rhyme or reason to who started when. Um, so that kind of stuff was was frustrating, but no, I was um, full tilt until I left the sport. I mean, in my even in Germany, my last ever pro game, I played left side in the semifinals against Berlin because um, it was just we had injuries. The guy had the flu. I was just like, okay, I guess I'm playing in our elimination last game of the season uh, as a left side and, and just kind of manage. Um, you know, as much as I could to get on the floor and whatever way possible. And then if I wasn't like, it's, you gotta support the team as much as you can. And it's, uh, it's a lot easier said than done. Like you have this constant friction of like, Hey, I'm competitive. Hey, I want to be on there, but making sure that you're supporting uh, the team. And the end of the day, it's about a win more than it is about your, your pride. Um, it's, it's a super important kind of like realization and, and gut check because being uh, a guy who's just whining on the side uh, was never is never a good look. So what what would you say contributed to you retiring? Because you're, you're still a young guy. Obviously, you were playing at a super high level. I, I didn't know about the concussion thing, but it, to me, it didn't seem like you had a lot of injuries. Maybe I'm wrong on that one. But did you just decide, you know what, I went all in. This was awesome. But now, you know, it's time to start a life. I want to I want to finish my degree. I want to do this. I want to do that. Like wh- what kind of determined that uh you, like I said, you, you gave it a shot, you went all in, you had a great career and it was just time to you know move on from volleyball. So my last summer uh, with the national team, I did have quite a few of the exact same injuries. I tore my, or had like micro tears in my quad uh, and it just kept happening. And I uh, started off in, in work, like DNL now, but World League at the time. I uh, started traveling with the team, uh, didn't have a great showing, came back and then uh, uh, continued with the team throughout the summer. And then the next summer, uh, didn't do any competition. So Brett and Jay went to the Pan Am Cup. Uh, the other team was traveling. Uh, and throughout that summer, I was, again, playing a bunch of different positions. Like I played with libero in practice. I was playing left side. I was playing right side. I was bouncing around all these different different positions. Um, and it, again, I was trying to find a contract, um, had one lined up in Puerto Rico and then, uh, fell through at the last minute as every pro player will experience probably at some time. But it was going for the 2016 Olympics. Um, and at the time 
you know, it was a tough, that, that summer was really tough. And, uh, Jay went through one, I think after 2016 as well, where like, um, Brett traveled, uh, the whole time and not being able to play and then, you know, really dedicating yourself to it. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go back to school, um, and do an MBA. So I, you know, kind of said, Hey, I went full tilt. I'm going to start a life. Um, you know, if you asked me that a year before that, no shot, but a bunch of things kind of culminated together, I guess, uh, with injuries, not having a pro contract. I came back and coached with uh, John at U of T and doing that. Um, and I was still trying to find a contract throughout the year to try and help support the guys, but um, uh, it didn't, didn't work out. And at that point, uh, they were going to head to the Olympics. Uh, or I guess we're making their final push because we did the last chance qualifier. But um, just decided to, to pursue other parts of life, even though when I was uh, 18 or 19 years old, that was not even on the radar. Yeah, no, for sure. Thanks for, for correcting me there and filling me in all the stuff you had on the go, because I think it's a good sign for Canadian volleyball that these tough decisions are being made. But I think every quad, there's there's people being left out, because I think you were right there. I mean, for Dan Lewis not to make the team, like that's got to be heartbreaking that I think people need to realize that there's so many good guys in the gym and that wasn't always the way, but to cut it down to 12, there's always going to be like armchair quarterbacks. You can sit here and we could argue this guy over this guy or this guy and this guy. So with you being in the trenches and going through this quad, how, how difficult was it? Do you start to like weigh certain practices over others or certain performances or were you able to come to terms that, you know what, I I got beat out. I I wanted to be an Olympian, but I just didn't get this cycle. Like it's gotta be tough going from being on the VNL roster and then not getting the nod. Right. Yeah, it, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, I think at that point, TJ had fully been on the rise. Like he had taken taken the spot with with uh, Dusty, and Dusty had some injuries as well uh, that prevented him from, I think, uh, being able to continue. And then uh, between Jay and I was kind of the next spot, and then uh, I had last before that summer and, and Dusty had an injury and, and, uh, Jay stepped in and, and did a great job. Um, but, I mean, all those decisions that culminate, that is, um, I actually like wrote a, a case, um, when I was in business school with, with Glenn and that decision is maybe one of the hardest things that, that a coach can do because you're trying to take it on, um, multiple different facets and, and across a huge sample size. Um, these athletes that you've had for like eight years that you know they've given like blood, sweat, and tears to to be on that roster and and continue with the team and creating a framework for what that decision is is uh, really important and and sticking with a lot of uh, the the guys that that were there and then you know some like Blair just beat like flatly beat out Dan and at the time. Um, and it was tough to make those decisions, like walking in, Cohen being another one that was just like Adam Simak. I mean, those guys were right on the cusp and given like their life to the, to the game. So, I mean, I was a little bit more removed, I would say, than those last like three or three or four cuts, but certainly in that, in that mix all the way heading up to it. Um, but I think we all look on back on that quite fondly still. Um, I still see Adam. I'm not quite a bit being in Toronto and um, you're not going to trade that <laughs> for, for anything. Like you're still part of the group and, and part of the, the, the team that helped the, 
the country get back to the Olympics. And at that point, it was, uh, you know, obviously disappointing that you're not part of it, but certainly rewarding that um, we, we kind of hit almost like a new era into the sport in Canada after that. Uh, and now the guys, like I'm, I went back and did some coaching for a week when uh, Steph NTU was there. Uh, I just went and was on a box pretty much, but watching uh, the, the evolution that had happened even like after that in 2017, 2018. These guys are very, very talented coming in. Yeah, well said. Yeah, thanks for sharing that because, yeah, I, I'm doing research for the show. I, I was a fan of your game. I'm thinking like this guy had an awesome career, but it, it's got to come to an end. And it's great to hear about you doing your MBA and you've got other stuff on the go that it's it's awesome. And I, I mean, I think that's pro sports, right? You kind of always got to have a plan, even though you went all in and that was your focus that you, now you're on to other things and, and things are still great. So thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing all that you did. Uh, one thing we've built into a tradition on the show is just a funny or odd story because we've just pumped your tires. We've just picked your brain on so many things, but man, something odd or funny had to, had to have happened along the way. So I was hoping you could share one more story before we let you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll relate to, to one domestic and one international that happened. Uh, domestic being uh, the post-national championship carnage, I think, that happens in a hotel room. Um, generally, we had uh, Thompson Rivers the other we won in 2010. I think leaving the hotel, uh, I don't know or nor would I say what... Uh, the state of the hotel was, but I think generally just leaving with a bunch of uh, athletes in their final stretch of the season. We had uh, fire extinguishers out. There were, uh, you know, people in in uh, bed sheets just kind of walking around the halls, like not knowing where they are. General discombobulation, um, and and people needing to stop on the side of the road uh, with photography to. Uh, uh, cleanse themselves prior to heading to the airport, let's say. Uh, so it was a little bit of a, a follow the carnage as we uh, as we finished up for the national championship. And it was a, a lot of fun and a lot of uh, crazy stories that came from, I think, the end of the night in the tournament in general. And then on the, the international side, um, one of the coolest events that, that I participated in was um, in the Northwest Part of Germany, they're not so much Oktoberfest, but Carnival. So outside of Rio, Cologne hosts the second biggest uh, Carnival in the world, and that whole area in Durin where I played, um, we were on the float. So our team like goes across and is like paraded through the town. So my first year, we were pirates on a ship, and you just throw out candy to kids, and you kind of like run around the city. And you're on this float for four hours and you have, um, you know, a couple of drinks and you have, you know, everything kind of below you on the candy and you're just throwing out candy kids and it's total chaos. So we would like throw the big candy and there'd be like fights, not fights, but like, you know, childish games and running around in the street. And then uh, just experiencing that, that entire event was, was pretty hilarious. And then my second year, uh, we all dressed up as Disney princesses. So literally the biggest guys on the float, uh, me being the smallest, and then a bunch of just huge humans uh, dressed up as Disney princesses on the float uh, with our like power volleys banner and everything like that. So it was a pretty uh, pretty memorable experience on both the domestic and international front. 
I love it as we're getting into like a lot of people starting their first pro season. I can't imagine like the first team event is like, hey, you got to meet us at this spot. Oh, and wear your Disney costume because we're going on this flow. <laughs> That's your first experience with pro volleyball. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We had luckily we had our, our captain kind of organize everything there. We had some good connections with sponsors. We got like literally a ship, like a full pirate ship and get uh, everyone put on the float a good kind of last push to the season. I'll say it's right near the season end, like mid February. So uh, it was a really, really fun experience. That's so cool. Yeah. We're not condoning the partying in the hotel, but that is our second good story where it just sounds like long season, you win it, you get to blow off some steam and then fire up for exams and stuff. I think the other story we had was, uh, Jackson Howe got his head shaved by his teammates. He just got tackled and enough was enough. They, they thought the mullet had reached the, the end of the season. So they had to let him know that uh, he, he wasn't going home with the mullet. So, you know, I think a, a special stuff happens in the hotel room after nationals every year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I think every, every year all the teams just kind of converge and you're, you know, maybe meeting up with guys throughout the season, but this is kind of your last, uh, last time and see a lot of guys until the next season rolls around or until you see them with national team or provincial team stuff. So, Well, man, this has been great. Thanks again for, for hopping on and sharing all that you did. I definitely learned a lot as a guy who thought he followed your career. So thanks for sharing all the details that you did. And I'm sure our listeners got a kick out of it too. I know. Appreciate it.